Exploring the Word of God together allows us to share in the joy that comes from discovering the words of hope and salvation which overflow from our Bibles. Upper Room Media presents to you this educational, enlightening and entertaining Bible study. Prepare to be transformed. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Here we are, week two of Ephesians. Um, and a little bit of a recap. So last time we we talked that we just kind of introduced the, the city of Ephesus. And one of the things that we said is that it was a port city. Um, and whenever there's a port city, there's a lot of inflow and outflow from uh, you know from the ports, and that naturally brings a variety of belief system into any city. And so there were Jews there, yes, but there were Gentiles. And and again, like with that court city kind of mixture, there's a lot of, you know, idol worships and different gods. And we, you know, we got a glimpse of some of those in the book of Acts, where uh, the great city of Diana and the whole uproar in the city that happened in Ephesus. Um, uh, Paul was there for quite some time. He struggled initially in, the, in his ministry, but over time and perseverance and resilience, he gained some traction. Um, we know this because of that famous story where uh, these itinerant Druze were trying to cast out the demon. And the demon looked at them and, and said, like, Paul, I know, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who you are, I have no idea. Right. So for the demons to be saying that out of this demon possessed man means that, OK, Paul had made an impact. He had gained traction. Right. And then he had to eventually depart because uh, the turmoil was was great there. And they, and they sent Paul out. Um, he ended up writing this letter to uh, to not just the you know Ephesus, but to all the churches in Asia Minor, because some of the earliest manuscripts of this book in the first verse actually don't have Ephesus. It just says, you know, to to the brethren. Um Sorry, I feel like I'm misquoting. It says, um, to the saints, right, and the faithful in Jesus Christ, right? So Ephesus in verse 2 actually isn't in some of the earlier manuscripts. So for context, probably some of the, those who were transcribing were um, kind of added that in. Um, but Paul wrote this from prison. So we know it was late in his life, probably in the you know 60 to 63 AD um, timeframe, said his primary audience was Gentiles, but also Jews. So they're both in the area, and and he's ad addressing them as the church, right? And I didn't clarify this la last time, but he's talking to them, but in the context of a church community. So they're both together and trying to make it work and understand, right? And the big theme is that salvation is for all through the church, right? Salvation is for all through the church. So he's really working through these differences between Jews and Gentiles, right? And chapter one uh, is kind of a, like chapter one and two are really like powerful. Um, where in chapter one, we we run into this whole idea of predestination. And we spent a lot of time talking about that. And we said that predestination is to determine beforehand or to prearrange things. And the reason why this is a big deal is because John Calvin, um, in you know the 15th, 14th, 15th century, 
uh, came about and, and one of the main tenets of Calvinism is predestination, meaning like from the beginning, some people were chosen as believers and will be saved and other people are not, right? Now, that was the, the Calvinist belief and it's present to this day. And a lot of it has to do with what we read in chapter one. And what we really took some time doing last week is reading it and and saying, what is Paul saying and what he is not saying? And and through that exercise, when we go, especially especially through uh, verses, you know, three through um, eleven or so, what what we saw is that when Paul is talking about things that are predestined, right? He's saying that God predetermined that humanity was to be created holy and perfect, right? And the evidence of that was in the garden before the fall. And he, but he also knew that humanity was going to fall and that he was going to need to come and save them through his son. This was always the plan. This wasn't like, let's make it up as we go. This was predetermined from before. And so all of humanity was predestined to be with him holy and perfect. And when that plan, you know, was, was you know, messed up through the fall, God executed his plan, which is I will send my son to bring them back, right? And so Paul goes on to say that, yes, reconciliation, the process of reconciliation started with the Jews, but when Jesus came, he kind of changed the narrative to include everybody, which was the goal from the beginning. Right, And anybody who chooses to believe in salvation would then be set on this lifelong journey. And it's this lifelong journey of deeply knowing God right, in, in a very real and intimate way. And the example that I gave last week is everybody has been pricked by a thorn. But when you run into a thorn bush, it's very, very different. Right, You get very intimate knowledge of what a thorn bush is like. Right. Um, and, and the Greek word for that is, you know, the Greek word for knowledge is gnosis, but the Greek word for real intimate knowledge is epignosis, which is the word that, that Paul uses in the latter part of chapter one. So that's chapter one. Okay. We're going to jump into chapter two. And while we were picking on John Calvin, um, and, and talking about that predestination belief this time, we'll, we'll be dealing with one of the beliefs that Martin Luther, uh, really held on to which is this idea of you know being saved by grace and, and hopefully uh, bringing clarity to that uh, situation. So uh, there's any, no, any questions on that, let me know, but, um, but I'm going to go ahead and uh, throw out our initial questions, right? So first question is, in what ways has society molded us, right? To the point that it makes us difficult it makes it difficult for us to actually receive the free gift of salvation, right? So what influence has society have on, has had on us that makes it difficult for us to really embrace salvation? Well, I would say it depends on what actual aspects of society we're going on. Because if you're going on like the secular society, it's, I think, the idea that you don't ultimately need to change. You're fine as you are, okay. generally speaking. But if you're more of like the more like the on the more religious side of the cultural spectrum, like the <clears throat> mostly the different Protestant 
denominations, which basically a lot of them imply that you shouldn't have to do anything to actually like live out your salvation. Okay. All right. And uh, I'll just qualify. Like I don't, these questions I come up with very quickly. So try not to like think too deeply because I'm not thinking so deeply about it. Um, so it, it like, to your point, Matthew, yes, you can look at it from, from both perspectives. I wasn't, I was very general, um, but I like your points and both are, are, are spot on. What other ways has society molded us that makes it difficult, difficult for us to receive the free gift of salvation? Uh, not having, not, not giving enough not giving ourselves enough time to just be with ourselves and be with mm. God and like not knowing who we are and not knowing who God is. Very true. So we're always like moving, moving, moving. moving. Yeah. Right. And so it's hard to just sit yeah. down before God. I agree. Like it's almost cool to be like, oh, I'm busy. <laughs> I'm busy. Oh, right. I'm busy. Oh, you're cool. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Like I always, I always think like, kind of chuckle when when people like come to me and before they even say anything when i know you're so busy i'm like how do you know <laughs> right how do you know that i'm busy maybe i did nothing today <laughs> right i think kind of going off of that idea of busyness is this idea where society grooms us to like we earn everything through performance basis yeah. right yeah. that i work hard i get recognized i get the promotion right so everything is is on a performance basis and but when we come to salvation as we're going to see here in chapter two it's not performance based and i, I think that is one of like a big hang up yeah. right and i think the way that i see it frequently you know materializing is that when you talk to people i'm like i know i need to clean up my act before i come to church Right? I need to get things in order. I need to read my Bible and start praying before I come. That's performance based, and, 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 at least the way I see. It, so, any other challenges? I would say I don't know if this is a particularly spot on for our culture per se, but I would say a, a big thing is vulnerability. I think that's just a universal thing. We don't really want to be in a position where we we can't control it, basically. Fair enough. And why do you think that that um, can make it difficult for us to re to receive the free gift of salvation? Because for one, we have to humble ourselves to recognize that, which that in itself is not easy. <clears throat> um, but Two, I would say just the vulnerability. It is uh it's something you don't really want to encounter. I think I think it's just against human nature. It's probably like a survival mechanism. Hmm. Fair enough. All right, second question. What constitutes and I like our understanding of what a church is? Like, what do you need to have? What are the components you need to have in order for it to be a church? The liturgy. Okay. Right. Right. 
You need at least two people, right? Someone besides the priest, technically. I'm asking a question. <laughs> I'll answer it later. I'm just asking a question. <laughs> Fifty chains. Okay. The Holy Mysteries is a big one. Sacraments. People assembling. Okay. An assembly almost. An assembly of people. Huh? Very good. We're going to hold on to that one because we we need to answer that one. The other and kind of building off that is, what are social barriers that can inhibit a church from being united? There's social barriers that can inhibit a church from being united. I ordered the background music. <laughs> right, spot on. <laughs> what are social barriers? So what are social barriers that can inhibit a church from being united? I mean, I would probably say cultural differences has to be a huge one. Okay, so cultural differences, like your difference. Maybe generation differences. Okay, there can be generational differences. And we see these in churches, right? You know, new generation always wants change. Old generations like, no, this is the way we've always done it. So those that, you know, there's that, a bit of that, that tension and that conflict, right? Cultural, so language. Perhaps differing ideas of authority or different, just different people want to be in charge. Okay. <clears throat> Buna, I'm so sorry. Can you repeat the question? Sure, sure. Uh, the question is, what are social barriers that can inhibit or interfere with the church being united? Right? What are things that come in the middle and interfere with it with the unity of a church? Okay, thank you. I think someone said age differences, right? Mm -hmm. I don't want to repeat that. Oh, okay, yeah. Generation. Age, culture, language. Yeah. Um, kind of power struggles. Maybe also just different differing expectations. Okay. Um, it was more of like individuals, they expect certain things, and we all kind of have a different idea of what reality should be. What's the ideal? Okay. Expectations and standards. Yeah. Uh, expectations and standards. Okay. So I how think. Sorry, go ahead. Also, our own insecurities has to play a role in that. So sometimes. I assume things just because of my insecurity and then I build a story and then act upon it and then it escalates. So I think um, our own insecurities also um, can participate in that. I, I agree. And I mean, thank you for, for, for saying that because I think that's something that happens so frequently. Um, 
and, and a lot of times we're not aware of the narratives that we can create in our mind that, you know, if we're not careful, will pit us against our, our brother or sister. Um, so thank you, man. That's a really good one. All right. We're going to jump into thank you, everybody, for your, for your you know input on those questions. And hopefully we will address those as we work through. So we're going to start off looking at um chapter two and we're just going to read the first three verses i'll go ahead and get us started right and i want my question is who is paul talking to in these first three verses okay and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air the spirit who knows who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in lust, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. All right? Who is Paul talking to? Gentiles who became Christians. Okay. What's the evidence of that? Like, how did you reach that conclusion? You once walked according to the course of this world. Uh, you were dead in trespasses. Okay. So he's referring to Gentiles who had like idol worship and, and different beliefs. Okay, is that the only person that he is referring to? Yeah, verse three. Verse three, just at the end. So uh, this is a message for everyone. Okay, it is. So he's also including the Jews. So among whom also we all conducted ourselves. So Paul was a Jew or is a Jew, right? And so he's speaking on behalf. And, and by saying, among whom we also once conducted ourselves, what is he doing? It looks like he's trying to bring a sort of unity between both camps to sort of say you both messed up. So let, like you, you have that in common. So it's, there's no like sense of superiority on either or. So he's speaking to the, the kind of the brokenness of humanity. Gentiles did it one way. Jews did it another way. Right. But at the end of the day, what was ultimately being followed? The lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires and the lusts of the mind. You know, and we were Nate, we were by nature children of wrath, right? Just as the other. So he's essentially saying Jews were doing the same things, you know, yes, under the kind of this understanding that we are God's people, but at the end of the day, they were following their own desires, right? Whatever their their flesh wanted to do that's what they did and so they became you know by nature children of wrath just as the other just as Gentiles, right so this is what paul's doing and the big thing you know just to highlight and make sure we're on the same page was this issue between jews and gentiles and jews were believing that yes jesus came okay but you were still saved kind of with a mixture of like 
you had to do these ritual acts, but then also we believe in Jesus, but we still need to do these acts, right? Uh, and the big one was circumcision and following the discipline, you know, some of the laws, but the big issue was circumcision. And that's how you really obtain salvation. Gentiles were outsider. And in the, you know, from the perspective of the Jews, they needed to conform in order to be saved. They needed to take on all these Jewish beliefs and get circumcised in addition to their belief in Jesus. And those two it would be how they would be saved, right? And according to Paul, you know, in these verses, he was saying that, what's the big deal? Like, it doesn't matter because both Jew and Gentile, they were living in almost an animalistic way. Whatever, like, they wanted, they went after. No difference, okay? No difference. So let's look at verses four through seven, if somebody can read that. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loves us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and risen up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come, he might show the exceedingly riches of the of, of his grace in Jesus. All right. Great. Great. So here, St. Paul is emphasizing God's love as being abundant and eternal, right? And it's independent of our ability to realize or even begin to repent, right? Which is why he says, with you know, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. So his love for us predates our, you know, our, our sin and the death that ensued because of sin. And even though we weren't able to realize or even begin repenting, he authored all of salvation, right? But the one, you know, just something additional to, to think of when he's saying, um, you know, dead in trespasses, right? What death is he talking about? And there's two, there's spiritual death, there's physical death. Spiritual. Okay. So what differentiates spiritual death versus physical death? Um, if you're physically dead, you're like buried on the ground. Whereas if you're spiritually dead, you're like away from God or your spirituality is not alive or active, I want to say. Okay. So it's more of like it's, it's non-existent. Okay. Itself. All right. Let me, you're on, I'm just going to adjust a few. So sure. physical death back in this Judeo-Christian understanding was when the soul separated from the body because the soul was believed to animate the body, bring life. And right. if the soul wasn't there, okay, then there, there, there's nothing in the person. Right, there's physical death. Spiritual death, very similar to what you're saying, is a separation from God as a result of sin. Right, and we can recover from spiritual death. Right, but we can't like bring our physical death. We can't bring our our soul, but we can, you know, redirect our soul to God and find spiritual life. In it, right, so he's talking about the spiritual death is the separation from God as a result of sin. Right, now. What word is repeated over and over in these verses? Grace. 
Christ. Okay, Christ. This fake looking through five through seven. Okay. Huh? Us. us. I'll and yes, us. So it's kind of an unfair question. I was focusing on together. Okay. <laughs> All right. But together, like, is is repeated over and over. It says, alive together, raised us up together, made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Right. So he uses this word together, which in Greek it doesn't translate well. But a, maybe a more accurate translation is kind of co, right? To, you know, to be like, you know, co-sharers in what he's doing. And actually in some translation in the Orthodox study Bible, you would see co-quickened, co-raised, and co-seated, right? And, and when we think of kind of this idea of co-quickened, co-raised, and co-seated, what he's saying is that Christ accomplished these things. And when we are baptized into the church, with baptism, you know, was happening by this time. St. Paul went around and baptized. Baptism was how anyone joined the church. And then uh, Paul or, or Peter and John would go and lay their hands and they received the Holy Spirit. This is how the church began to grow. Right, the same sacraments we have today. This is how they practiced it back then, and you know, back then is the, the the foundation of what we practice today. So baptism was how one entered the church, and so when one entered the church, what was Paul just talking about? He's talking about spiritual death, and so when you know we through baptism joined the church, what happened is he co-quickened. He co he gave us his life because. We believed in him. So he shared his life with us. He also co-raised us. So, so he, in overcoming death through his own resurrection, would raise us up at the last day. And what did he do? He ascended to heaven, sits at the right hand of his father, bringing humanity up to the heavenly paradise in the person of Jesus Christ. So he co-seated us. Right. So Paul is, is telling them, this is what we have as humanity. And we know it's humanity because Christ came, he took on human flesh, he incarnated, and what he did, he did for all of humanity. And so he emphasizes here, or there's emphasis in the verses, by grace you have been saved, right? And the whole point of emphasizing this is to say this wasn't something that we did or earned, right? It was separate from our um activity as humans we didn't repent and then he saved us he saved us and then he taught us you know and then we really learned repentance so it wasn't based on our actions we were still sinners we were all dying right but he's addressing the mentality of the jews to say kind of shift your frame work of realizing that we are saved through these ritual acts and realize that we are saved because of what he did not because of what we do, right? So as an Orthodox Christian, do we believe 
that we're saved by his grace? Yes. Okay. We do believe this. We agree um, with the Protestants on this, but we differ, okay, on how that belief affects our day-to-day, -day, right? So we, if somebody says, do you believe that we're saved by grace and grace is, is like free and what Christ did was free? Yes. Okay. But there's more to how we believe that, right? So yes, salvation is free. It is a free gift. Nothing that we did. Right. None of the rights that we do in the church are what like earnest salvation. It is a free gift given to us. Right. But it doesn't kind of take us off the hook, so to speak, of how we choose to live our life. So that's going to be a key difference. Well, any questions? Somebody read verses eight through ten. I'll do it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Great. Right. So here's saying Paul is beginning to set the foundation of Orthodox spirituality, which is really grounded in humility. And, and where's the point of humility here? Nothing we could have done would have earned us, right? So I can't think of myself as great. All I can do is realize, wow, I was dead, but somebody, you know, that, that somebody being God cared so much and did all this for me, right? So he's kind of setting the stage for, you know, one of our foundations in spirituality, which is humility, right? That I can't earn it. I cannot hurt, right? But I need to make a choice whether to believe it or not, right? That is reserved for me. That cannot be taken. And this was the big issue with Calvinism and predestination, that we cannot be taken of that choice to believe or not. Because once we take away the choice to believe, it ceases to be love because love has to be free. God freely chose to come and sacrifice his son for us, right? And we, and because he wants a loving relationship, have a choice to believe in him or not. Now, if we choose to believe, what does that mean for us, right? And that's what St. Paul is saying in verse 10, right? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So by making this choice to believe that I'm also believing that I was created to live like Christ and do good to others because this is what he did to us. This is what he did to me. So good works become inseparable from the Christian life, right? And it's not to be confused with the understanding that good works are what earn our salvation. When we say good works are inseparable from Christian life, it is not the same thing as saying good works are essential for salvation, or, or not essential, but good works earn a salvation, right? Paul just defeated that idea, that our good works don't earn us, but our good works are inseparable from our belief in Christ, right? And so we were predestined 
to be holy and conform to his image. And we read that in scripture, be holy as I am holy, you know, be conformed to his image. And this evidence or manifestation of faith is tied to good works, right? Because how are we often referred to in scripture as the light of the world? Or they will know that you are mine by how you love each other, right? This is how the Lord said we are to be in this world. So he predestined, he determined beforehand, this is how I want you to live. I will show the example of how I want you to live through my son. And you were created in his image to grow in his likeness. So you were created for good works. But your good works did not earn you salvation. They are just evidence of your faith that I have come and I have saved you. Right? So the church is a collection of believers. And these believers should be the light in this world. And a light cannot be a light without good works. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Good. Go Bruno, may I ask a quick question? Yes. Back to the Calvinists. Yeah. If the Calvinists think that you you ultimately don't have a choice to pick salvation or not, how would they explain if someone failed to be convinced by their arguments? How would they ex explain that in a what do you mean if somebody failed to be convinced by their argument? So if they, if they, uh, if we can't choose God or not God, basically we right. can't choose salvation or not. How how would they explain someone who can't, who is not convinced of their various arguments? That because that person doesn't have the choice, right? So if I understand your question correctly, they would take, you know, even as they tried to explain. And the person like didn't get it, didn't understand, or wasn't interested. I I I think that they would see that person as having not been chosen. Okay, it's that simple. That's my understanding of it. But okay. I would say I have a very intimate un, and, and deep understanding. Okay. Okay, but I think that's how they would see it. And in the same way, like as you know, they would the reason why they would preach and go out and evangelize still is because they would hope that they would kind of trigger the awakening of somebody who was chosen that they just didn't realize but gonna, they're chosen. Okay, but it's going to happen then they don't really need to do that it, it doesn't but i think that's where the argument gets really sticky for them right because okay. i think when, why right, do you need to help god if god has already made it and and I think the follow-up to that would be, but when they kind of wake up to it and they invest in their relationship with God, they reap more of the fruits of the relationship. So they want those who are chosen to be more aware of their relationship with God, invest in the relationship with God to enjoy the fruits of that relationship. At the end of the day, though, when you kind of really look at it from a nuts and bolts perspective, whether they do that or not doesn't impede or grant them salvation because they're already chosen or not chosen. It's a really tough argument. And 
And if you know of anybody who comes from a Calvinist, you know, background, have this discussion with them. I've, I, like I've done it, you know, I have, you know, close friends who are great people who come from a Calvinist background. Um, and, and the discussion is, it, it, it's hard, it's challenging. But I also, after having studied like, you know, at least chapter one and two in depth, I understand, you know, if you're not careful, you can read into the verses what you want to get from, them, right? And so you have really have to be careful. All right. I mean, it still seems a contradiction though, because they like everyone else will demand that the culture of society needs to repent. So I, I still don't understand, like, like John MacArthur, for example, often says that so i don't understand how that can how they can say that but also hold to other theories but i guess i'm going tangent i mean it's a good discussion i think we, we do need to reserve it for another time but i would really encourage you to try and have this discussion with somebody from the calvinist background and i think it, it, it'll it's good to be in those discussions to you know to try and understand like how how they how they view it um, and how they also justify, you know, the effort that they make in their own spiritual life and, and also in reaching out to others. So good discussion to have with a couple. All right, let's do, I'll read 11 through 13. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcised by what is called the circumcision is made, you know, made in the flesh by hands that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Right? So essentially, St. Paul is saying, enough with the name call. Right? Therefore, you remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcised, right? And this is a bit of a derogatory, you know, comment, because when you think of, you know, think of David when he was going out to fight Goliath, what, how did he describe Goliath? This uncircumcised Philistine is like sort of derogatory, right? And, and so he's saying enough of this, right? Yes, you were without Christ, Okay, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, that there is merit to the history that the Jews have and Israel have with God, right? That they were his chosen people, the commonwealth of, of Israel, that they, they were rich because they were chosen, right? And you were strangers from the covenant of promise. They weren't included when, when and the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant and all these covenants that were made throughout the Old Testament, they weren't in the picture, right? Having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so it's interesting, and you might find in some commentaries, this is a reference back to Isaiah when he was talking about Jews who were kind of close and then Jews who were far off. Right, that have kind of gone to other nations and so on, that's saying everybody will be brought back into the fold. But our understanding of it in light of the New Testament, in light of Christ, was those who were far off were the Gentiles. Right? So the question is, how is everybody brought together? And this is where I want us to think back of 
our, my question on what constitutes the church. So if somebody can read 14 through 18 and appreciate that. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who are near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. All right. So context. Verse 14. Who is both? Jews and Gentiles. Right. Yeah. Jews and Gentiles. Right. And what's the middle wall of separation? The law of circumcision. Commandments. Yeah. The law of Moses, which it's important to, like, to realize that there was a law of Moses, which we have in, in Exodus. And in Leviticus, but over time, and through the displacement of the Jews and different nations, and, and so on, what they kept on doing is adding modifications to the law because we couldn't fully, you know, we couldn't fully follow the law. The Jews couldn't fully follow the law when they weren't in Jerusalem and without the temple. And so, when they're in foreign lands, they're like, okay, well, how do we do this? Okay, we'll, we'll kind of make, we'll modify the law and say we got to do this, right? Okay, but how do we like eat here? Well, we'll modify the law and, and so we add all these ordinances. And so by the time we're getting to this New Testament, what do we have? The law of Moses and then all this like volumes of other books of ordinances and things that we need to keep. And so the whole situation became so murky. There's like, okay, do we follow this? But we're back here. Okay, we have the temple, but we, we kind of implemented this. So it became really, you know, laborious for any Jew to follow what was considered the law at this time. Let alone say, "Hey, you Gentile, you want to, you want, you want to be saved? Boom! <laughs> this is what you need to follow, right? All these hundreds and hundreds of ordinances. So that's what is being referenced here. It was just nobody could do it. Nobody could do it, and so it created this enmity because now the Jews are like, "Okay, but we have all this." And now you're saying the Gentile can just be saved through believing? Like, no, no, no. <laughs> Welcome to the law of Moses, right? Right? This is they wanted them to come in and, and <laughs> kind of carry the same burden. And so there was this like, you know, enmity, and the and the Gentiles were like, Okay, I want to believe and be saved, but like you want me to <laughs> so it caused a lot of friction between the two groups. And so you know, what we have is Jesus coming in. And so he took on humanity and he would bring together these two. He would bring together the Jews and Gentiles and he would make peace because he removed the law, right? Yes, the law in the time before Christ had a role because it brought them into a knowledge, into a relationship between, you know, themselves and God, who they were growing and understanding. So they needed the law to say, well, this is wrong. And if you do this, you know, you have to, you know, sacrifice this animal and you have to ask for forgiveness. And this is how we deal with murder and all these different things. So it helped them understand a little bit more about God. But the law could never complete 
the goal, which was unity, which was making them whole, which was taking them from this world to the next world to overcome sin. The law could never do that. So in itself, it was deficient. And when Jesus came, what did he do? Not only did he fulfill the law, but he finished the pathway to heaven which was through the cross and through his overcoming of death and bringing, you know, his resurrection and then his ascension of taking humanity up to the right hand of the father, right? So he brought salvation to the Jews who are near and to the Gentiles who are described as afar off, right? So he took the law out of the picture. He said, all right, Jews, you don't need this. Put it to the side. What you need is me, right? I'm the only way. doesn't matter what you do. All the effort you put into this book will not get you salvation, which is causing so much of the friction within the church. So he took away this hostility between the two groups. He took away this division between them, and he offered his gift of salvation freely to everybody. And in verse 18, it's small, but it's, it's nice, where it says, For through him, him being Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit to the Father. And we have kind of loaded in this verse is a whole bunch of sacramental theology, right? And, he's, and again, he's talking about this in the context of church, in a community. And so he's saying all, all of our mysteries or all of our sacraments in the church that we believe like right now are a work of the Trinity, right? We desire unity with God, unity with the Father. That was made possible through the Son who united humanity, this physical reality, and divinity, the spiritual reality. He brought them together. And every sacrament we have, there's a physical reality and a spiritual reality that are united in the sacrament. We eat and drink bread and wine, spiritual reality, body and blood. We go into a basin for baptism three times. There's a physical submersion, but the spiritual reality is death and resurrection, right? We anoint with oil, which is physical, but the spiritual reality and belief is that the Holy Spirit is then sealed inside of us. So there's in our, our sacramental belief is that there's this union which is founded in the incarnation, right? There's this union between the physical and the spiritual world. And what it does is it gives us kind of this access to the Father, right? Through Jesus Christ, right? Who made it possible and the blessing of the Holy Spirit. You know, in, in the liturgy, during the institution narrative, what is said inaudibly is this prayer called the Epiclesis. And the Epiclesis is a prayer that invokes the Holy Spirit to come down upon the bread and the wine and transform it to become true body and true blood. Right? So there's the invocation. So in all our sacraments, there's an invocation of the Holy Spirit to take what we're doing physically and bring to it a spiritual reality. Right? And so verse 18 um, kind of captures this. 
Now let's really nail down in these last couple of verses understanding of the church. So we can read 19 through 22. I'll do it. Thank you. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens of the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, and whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, and whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. All right, great. What's the Greek word for church? Ecclesia. Ecclesia, right? That's the Greek word for church. How is this used historically? Anybody know? I think it's when they were like trying to, when they were like assembling to make like a political decision of right. some sort. It's a political term, right? In the Roman Empire. Oftentimes used in not the greatest of light because, you know, in the Roman Empire, anybody who gathered for a political agenda was labeled as like an Akiklesia, which is going to be a problem for the Roman Empire, right? So there are two kind of factors that go into the understanding of Akiklesia, right? Which is a group of people gathered together that share a common belief. Kinonia. Right? It's called Kinonia. Kinonia is fellowship. Okay, but Kikolisea is a group of people that gather together, surround, like, you know, uh, with a, sh a shared common belief. That what is bringing them together is this belief. Right? So, think of that, like, when I ask, like, what constitute a church? A focal point of belief and those who are gathered around for that belief. So it's not dependent on liturgy. It's not dependent on a church building. It is dependent on people who are gathering together because they have this shared belief. And that shared belief is drawing them together. So this common belief that is gathering everybody is that salvation is offered through all Offered to all through Jesus Christ. The cornerstone. Right? That was the cornerstone. It held up the building. You know, the cornerstone was the most important piece in any building because it took the stress of the foundation, of the walls, of the roof, all set on the cornerstone. And so the cornerstone of our belief is Jesus Christ. And buildings next like building off of that cornerstone was what all the disciples and the apostles did is they kind of expanded and help us understand the belief based on that cornerstone and as more believed in it what we have is this kind of interlocking you know sort of picture but that interlocking is happening from the body of believers who are saying i believe in this cornerstone and I believe in the teachings of the apostles. And so we gather together. Right. But then Paul kind of gives a picture of two buildings that are being built. 
So he's talking about, you know, as we come together as believers in Jesus Christ and the salvation he offered and the unity with the Trinity that we have through him, right? We come together as a group of people. That's the first one. But while we are building that, we're also building the temple of our hearts. So the Holy Spirit resides both in kind of the, the, the macro church and in the micro church, right? And the two feed each other. When I nourish my own temple, I become a stronger piece in the greater temple, right? I can pour into what's happening. We support one another. So we always say like, our own walk with Christ is so critical to the overall health of the church. When I don't focus on this, then it's hard for me as part of the larger church to be a strong you know, support, a strong member. And the strength of the church is linked to its believers. Right? So there's two churches being built, the personal temple and the communal temple. Right? And the Holy Spirit resides in both. And it's for all people. St. Paul here in chapter 2 is really like building this beautiful picture of the church being for all. Taking out these divisions that we hold on to, which are unnecessary. Right? We hold on to our social bias. We hold on to our cultural biases. And all it does is interfere with the growth and the health of the church. And it's silly because the fact is always going to be that Christ died for all of you. And just as in this epistle to the Ephesians, he was saying enough with these sources of division, the enmity between you. Take it out and realize that Christ died for all of humanity. We need to be challenged to do the same. Right? To hold on to the faith you know, but realize that this faith was for all of humanity. That is not selective, right? And that's when the beauty of the church comes together. That's when the unity of the church comes together. Right? Any questions? All right, let's close in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, God, amen. We thank you, Lord, for all your blessings. We thank you for this day, um, this opportunity to, to dive into this chapter. And we ask you, Lord, that you would help remove any of the biases that we have in our hearts and our minds. We challenge ourselves to see salvation for all, to move past um, the barriers that, that are always unnecessarily put up and realize that you have called all. When we do that, Lord, when we see that all people have been drawn to you, both near and far, um, then truly we would, we would be the healthiest form of the church. Uh, and Lord, help us to always be anchored in the reality of your salvation, in the reality that your only begotten Son took on uh, our human flesh, um, so that he may save us and raise us up, give us life, give us resurrection, and to seat us at the right hand of the Father. Through the intercession of all your saints, who have pleased you from the beginning, 
appears as we say, our Father, who art in heaven. This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart. And we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ.